Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you all. My name is Darren, and uh, excited to open God's Word with you as we continue in our study of Genesis. If you're a guest with us this morning, or if you're a guest online, you're watching, we're excited that you're here. And uh, we love having guests, whether you came with friends or you came from the neighborhood or whatever. We're really happy that you're joining us. Uh, I don't think you're going to have any trouble jumping into our Genesis study, but we're only six weeks from the end of that, and then we'll start something new. So you're jumping in at a great time. We hope that you won't consider yourself a guest for very long, but you'll feel like family around here, and anything I can do to help with that transition, please let me know. We find ourselves in Genesis 44 this morning in our continuing study, and and in order to kind of understand the ongoing drama here, uh, you have to remember with me the end of Genesis 43, and there are some things we didn't point at specifically last week, but let me refresh your memory just so you kind of see the ongoing movement in 44. At the end of 43, remember uh, at the beginning of 43, the brothers had gone back to get more food. The food they had was out. They'd gone back. And uh, as a result of their going back, now Joseph invited them to his house. He threw this dinner for them. And uh, if you'll remember with me, um, the steward in Joseph's house was the one who pointed to the brothers and said, man, you don't know where the money came from, but it was God who put that money back in in your back in your sacks. It was your God who did that. So even, even the steward sort of pointed them to the faithfulness of God. Joseph throws this big party. And if you read at the end of 43, there was a little bit of segregation, right? Cause the Egyptians didn't eat with Hebrews. And so there was a little bit of a spread, but more importantly, at the end of 43, Joseph is, uh, conducting something of an assessment of his brothers, right? It tells us at the end of 43 that Joseph put his brother's at their table in sequential order from oldest to youngest. Not only that, it tells us at the end of 43 that he served this dinner, but he served Benjamin, the youngest brother, five times, a quintuple portion of what he served to anybody else. Now, the reason that Joseph does this, the reason that Joseph is conducting this assessment is that if you'll remember, these are the very same brothers who, when he was young, were incredibly jealous of the favoritism that their father Jacob showed them. By the way, there are multiple J names in this message today. Judah, Jacob, Joseph. Sorry, you'll just have to help me sort it out. If I say the wrong one, I'm an old man. Just deal with it, right? So, But you'll remember that because of Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph, his brothers hated him. And because of the providential dreams that God gave to Joseph, his brothers hated him all the more. They plotted to kill him. But at the end of the day, they said, why should we kill him? We can't make any money that way. Instead, why don't we beat the snot out of him? We'll throw him in a hole and then we'll sell him to Egyptian slave traders. At least we make a little bit of cash, right? So they beat up Joseph. They throw him in a hole. They pull him out. They sell him to these Egyptian traders. And now, over 20 years later, these brothers have come back in fulfillment of that dream and what God had prophesied would happen And Joseph is conducting an assessment because he's trying to figure out if his brothers are the same guys they were some 20 years ago. Are they the same jealous, prideful, vindictive, hateful, violent guys that they were before? The same self-serving people that they were when he knew them? Or have they been transformed over time? So the reason he puts them in sequence and the reason that he serves Benjamin five times as much as anybody else is that he's watching closely to see how they respond to Benjamin's receipt of preferential treatment. They did not respond well to preferential treatment before, and how will they respond now? He gives them this portion, and all it tells us in 43 is that they have a uh, that they have sort of a great time. They have a great party, and they go to bed. Then 44, they get up the next day, and they're getting ready to leave. And Joseph continues his assessment. He looks at his steward, and he says, I want you to fill up their sacks with as much grain as they'll carry. I want you to give them back their money again. All of them, give them all back their money. And then I want you to take my silver cup and I want you to put that in the bag 
of the youngest brother, the one called Benjamin. I want you to put that in his bag, and then I want you to send them on their way. Joseph is continuing this assessment. We do this kind of thing sometimes, don't we? We, we sort of watch from a distance. Maybe you like the people watch. Maybe sometimes uh, you're a little bit provocative in the lives of other people. Not provocative in like an alluring way, but just maybe sometimes you like to push other people's buttons just to see what they'll do. I admit I tend to be that kind of person, especially with my family. I was uh, thinking through this message and I was reminded of a story my wife and I were talking about last night. And this is one of like 500 stories like this, but there was a day where my wife and I were at the Target in Lakewood, where we used to live. They've got like a two-story Target there at the mall. And we had gone in, we bought groceries and all kinds of other things. You know, it was like, it was expensive, whatever. We come out to the parking lot. And as we're unloading our groceries into the car, uh, I realized that my wife had, had gotten a, a tube of toothpaste, but she put it underneath her purse accidentally, right? It wasn't intentional. She put it underneath her purse in the cart. And so when we checked out, she hadn't paid. Now we paid for all these other things, several hundred dollars in merchandise, but this tube of toothpaste we had not paid for. And so as I'm unloading the cart, I find it. And I looked at my wife and I was like, Hey, did you steal this toothpaste? And she was like, Oh, I forgot that was there. I didn't even know. What, you know, what should we do? And I was like, well, I mean, we can't just take this toothpaste, right? And she's like, no, but I'm not really sure what to do. And I was like, I know what to do. Well, there was a kid in the parking lot pushing carts that worked for Target. He was like 17. And I was like, young man. And he looked at me and I was like, come over here. Unfortunately, I have to tell you that my wife has stolen some toothpaste from your company. And the kid's like, so, (laughs) right? And I said, so I need you to go back inside and get the the head of security and come back out here and, you know, teach my wife a lesson. Otherwise she's liable to do this thing again. And my wife's like, Darren, don't do this, right? Please do not do this. And he's like, oh, I don't, I don't think it's a big deal. And I was like, well, it might not be a big deal to you, but I can't live with a wife who steals, you know? And meanwhile, my wife's like getting in the car. She's just ready to like flee the scene. And I said, you see what she's trying to do? She's trying to get away. Go and get someone. And the the kid at Target's like, please just take the, I'll pay for the toothpaste. Just go. Like, I don't just, I don't know what's going on with your marriage, but please get out of here. Right. I, I am the kind of person who likes to put my wife in a scenario like that just to watch her squirm, right? Like just to see what she'll do. I'm not saying that's a good thing about me, uh, but it is kind of how I am. I will consider myself to be provocative and not in an alluring way. I like to provoke sometimes to see what's going to happen, right? Joseph here is putting a test in place to assess the character and the transformation of his brothers. And so they plant this cup in the sack of Benjamin. Then after they leave town, Joseph says to a steward, quickly go and, and apprehend those people on the road and catch them for what they've done. So that's what the steward does. The steward goes, he says, hey, somebody stole my master's silver cup and it was one of you. Now, logically, the brothers answer this very well. They look at the steward and they say, why would we do this? We didn't steal the cup. If we were thieves, we wouldn't have brought back the earlier money, right? The first trip we came here, we got our money back and we have integrity. We're honest people. We brought back that money. If we were going to steal it, we would have kept the first round of cash, but we didn't. It doesn't make sense. We'd be stealing this time. And the steward says, well, that, that remains to be seen because my master's silver cup is missing. And so the, they say basically, well, fine, do your worst. Like, right, search our bags. And whichever one of us whose bag you find the silver cup in, that person can die and the rest of us will be your slaves. Now, it's interesting because the steward amends what they say a little bit. He goes, okay, it's, we're going to do what you said, but that's not exactly what he says. He says, whoever has the cup will be the servant of my master. 
And so one by one, systematically, oldest to youngest, they are unpacking the bags and the silver cup isn't there and the silver cup isn't there and the silver cup isn't there. And if you're watching this, I'm guessing the brothers feel very justified and they feel vindicated. And like we told you, we didn't steal anything. They're opening up the sacks one at a time and finally they get to Benjamin, the youngest sack, and the brothers are just ready for this whole ordeal to be over. And when they open up that sack full of grain, within it they find the silver cup. And it tells us in the text that the brothers at that point tear their clothes. They are grief-stricken, right? They are out of their minds with grief over what is just... Like, it's mind-blowing to them that Benjamin would have had the cup. And they don't know whether he stole it. They don't know whether it's been planted there. They don't know exactly what happened. But they basically, the servant goes, well, there it is. We knew somebody stole it. Turns out it was your youngest brother back to Egypt because he's now going to be Joseph's slave. Now, they don't know Joseph's name, of course. So they go back, right? When they get back, look at this with me, if you will. In Genesis 44, verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there and they fell before him to the ground. That isn't, uh, that's not bowing in respect. That's literally flinging yourself on the mercy of the king. They fell before him to the ground and Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. It's an interesting response from Judah. It's an interesting response because what he says is, God has uncovered our guilt. We don't have a defense. We don't have an answer. God has uncovered our guilt. That's an interesting thing for Judah to say because they aren't guilty of this. The thing they're being accused of, the crime that they've been caught for, they did not commit. They didn't steal the money. They didn't steal the silver cup, right? Benjamin didn't do that thing. And yet Judah is very clear to say, God has found out our guilt. Well, what's he talking about? He's not talking about the silver cup at all. He's not talking about the money in the sacks. What he's pointing to and what he's referring to is the guilt that these brothers have carried for over 20 years because of their earlier violence, because of their earlier selfishness, because of their earlier deceit of their father when they took their brother's clothes and covered them with blood and lied to their father about his death, when they sold their brother into slavery. When the silver cup is uncovered, what the brothers feel is a sense of guilt and shame and remorse that has nothing to do with the current circumstance, but has everything to do with the character that they had conducted themselves with earlier. So they look at Joseph and they say, we will all be your servants. We are guilty men. And Joseph in an ongoing sense of his assessment, says something really interesting. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 44. Joseph said, far be it for me that I should do so. He's talking about taking them all into captivity. No, 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 we're not going to enslave all of you. Like, I don't need all 11 of you. Only one of you stole my cup and he's the one that will be my slave. Here's what Joseph says. Far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose cup Uh, in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. I love the the end of this speech that Joseph gives. He says, no, 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 we're not going to make you all slaves. We're just going to take your youngest brother, Benjamin, the one who stole my cup. But the rest of you, hey, you know what? Thanks so much for visiting Egypt. I hope you have a great trip home. The word he uses there is shalom. Go in wholeness and wellness. Peace be upon you as you travel back to your homeland with sacks full of grain, but without your brother, right? He looks at them and he says, go in peace. It's an interesting thing that Joseph does here. And what he's essentially doing, and the brothers pass the test. What he's essentially doing is he's giving them the opportunity to walk away scot-free. To abandon their brother Benjamin. 
to walk away and to go back to their father and say, hey, look, you know, we don't know what to tell you. Uh, we had nothing to do with this. We took Benjamin with us and turns out he stole the guy's cup. Like, we don't know why he did that. We don't have an answer for it. It's really weird. But the guy wanted to keep him in captivity. And so that's how it goes. And really sorry to tell you this, but we do have a lot of food. He's giving them the opportunity to save their own skin. To walk away without any criminal record, to walk away without any time served, to walk away without any kind of a punishment, all they have to do is a thing they'd already done 20 years earlier, abandon their brother. All they have to do is just repeat the same thing, and this time they don't even have to lie about it, right? They can do it all legitimately. They can abandon Benjamin, who is their father's favorite. He's like the baby of the family. They can walk away from him and their consciences are clear and they get to live their lives and eat their grain and move on. Joseph says, I'm just going to keep him. The rest of you are welcome to go in peace. God bless you. See you later, right? Thankfully, the brothers pass the test. The brothers refuse to leave. They refuse to take the offer. They refuse to abandon Benjamin. They aren't the same people they were some 20 years earlier. Their hearts are not in the same place. And Judah goes on then to give a speech, which is where we'll focus our attention this morning. This is the longest speech in the book of Genesis. It is a beautiful speech. In fact, a Martin Luther would look at the speech of Judah in Genesis 44 and sort of famously say that he feels like it's a beautiful model of what our prayer before God should be. That, that Judah's approach to Joseph, the leader of Egypt, is a perfect example of the way we should approach the throne of God in prayer. That we should come humbly, we should come with our petitions, and we should come with emotion, right? That we should come passionately. Um, I would look at this and say, I, I see all of that, and I see what Martin Luther's talking about. But I actually think that what Judah does inadvertently here is actually, he paints a great portrait for us of the character of Christ Jesus, Without knowing who Christ Jesus is and without knowing who Jesus would be, without knowing that, that, you know, thousands and thousands of years of Christ followers would be called to live like Christ and to put these character traits on display, Judah kind of unwittingly models for us the character that you and I are trying to put on display here in Fullerton and Placentia and La Habra and Brea all the time. He puts on display for us a, a kind of sacrificial life that we need to look closely at. And if you've been a part of this church for a while, I mean, we, we talk about this stuff again and again and again because it's stuff we kind of know, but we're not super great at doing. Judah gives this speech that is a beautiful picture of the attitude and the heart of the Lord Jesus. And the result of it, and I don't want to give any spoilers for what's going to happen, but the end result is that wholeness will return to this family. Wholeness will return to this family. Shalom, wellness, wholeness. We've talked before about the the fact that the overarching story of the Bible is that there was wholeness, there was shalom between God and man, between man and woman, between God and man and woman in creation. There was this wholeness and wellness. And then because sin entered in, there was brokenness and otherness. But the story uh, that God is writing in human history is of a return to wholeness. And that story is told again and again and again in the scriptures We will see a return to wholeness and unity in the family of Joseph and of Jacob. But I don't think that Judah is aiming at unity. I don't think Judah is aiming at wholeness or wellness or shalom. I think Judah is just desperate. I think he's sad. I think he's scared. I think he's panicked. I think he is a different man than he used to be. And in the midst of his fear and his panic, he just kind of blurts out the thing that sits right on the top of his heart. Fortunately, the thing that's sitting right on the top of his heart at this stage in his life is beautiful for us to observe and important for us to replicate. So I just want us to look at it a little bit, uh, pieces of it at a time here. 
Judah gives this speech, and I just want you to look at four characteristics I see put on display in it. The first one is submission. Look at verse 18. Judah went up to him and said to Joseph, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. The first thing I want you to see in Judah's response to the situation that he's in is a humility and a submission to to Joseph. He comes to him and he says, hey, will you please listen to me? Will you give me an opportunity to make my case? Will you give me an opportunity to explain what's happening here or to share some things with you that might change your mind? Will you please listen? And the humility and the submission of that is really beautiful because I can imagine a scenario in which Judah would have been like, hey, We didn't do this thing. We've been falsely accused. We're innocent. My brother didn't do anything. You're the one who told us to come down here in the first place. This is on you, man. I don't know about Egypt. This place is crummy, right? Every time we come here, there's drama. He could have thrown a fit. And he doesn't throw a fit. He makes a request. He asks for mercy. He shows emotion. But there is no fight here. There is no insult. There is no superiority. There is no condescension. There is no judgment. There is no self-righteousness in Judah. He would have been justified in being angry or insulting, condescending, superior, self-righteous. But he doesn't take any of those approaches. Instead, he comes humbly before the leader. I'm reminded in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, it says, To us, followers of Jesus, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Similarly, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3 say, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Judah puts on display a submissive heart that points to the submissive heart of Christ and points to the submission that you and I are called to in our interaction with one another. That we wouldn't be condescending that we wouldn't be insulting, that we wouldn't tear people apart, but that we would come humbly before others in the midst of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. I love that Joseph comes humbly. If you go down to verse 33, back to Genesis 44, verse 33, at the very end of his speech, he says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. There's a request there. I I was reminded even of our study. Remember a year and a half ago, we were studying the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a part in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking to us and he he talks about asking and seeking and knocking. You remember that? Ask and seek and knock. And we said at the time that that isn't just the way in which we're called to approach the throne of God, asking and seeking and knocking, but it's a beautiful model for how we approach one another. That we approach one another with questions and conversation. That we, we approach one another with a desire to understand and interact. It requires humility to ask and seek and knock and not just make a predetermined judgment. Judah comes to Joseph, first of all, in humility and with submission. Secondly, go back to Genesis 44. Secondly, the thing I see in Judah's beautiful speech is care. Care. I know that seems simple and almost like we don't really need to say it. But, but Judah actually cares about his dad. 
He actually cares about his brother. We see care all through this speech. Listen to the way he talks. By the way, he mentions Jacob, his father, 14 times in this short speech. This is, this is sort of the tenor of Judah's speech. Look at verse 19. He says, My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. But we went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we can't go down. If Benjamin doesn't go with us, then we will not go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces. I've never seen him since. And if you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. By the way, when we were looking at this this week in one of our little teaching meetings, the people suggested that that might potentially be what's happening to my hair, that my gray hair over time is moving uh, down towards Sheol. And it's stuck on my chin right now, but eventually it'll be gone entirely. It's an interesting theory, right? Uh, I love the care that Judah shows here for his elderly father and for his youngest brother. It would be easy at this point for Judah to be preoccupied with his own innocence. It would be easy at this point for Judah to be concerned about his own safety or his own wholeness or his own wellness, about his perception of the situation or about the wrongness of the justice system in Egypt. It would be easy for him to point out all the flaws around him or simply to take care of himself. But what Judah is preoccupied with is caring for his old dad and his younger brother. He's setting someone else's needs before his own. Not surprisingly, some of you will be reminded maybe of passages like Galatians 6.2 that say, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What do you do with a verse like that? What do you do with a verse like that that says the fulfillment of the law of Christ is about caring for other people? You can't set it aside. You can't dismiss it. We have to be caring more about others then we care about ourselves. It is the fulfillment of the law of Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What that verse says is that God comforts us so that we will know how to comfort other people and care about them. I could have used the word love here, right? I could have said as the second characteristic, the first one, submission, right? Humility. But the second one, I could have just said love. But I think when I talk about love, we think of it more as like a feeling, right? We think of it more as like, oh, do you, do you recognize the inherent value of all people? And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about actually caring about them. Care about them. See them and care about them more than yourself. More than your own rights, more than what you deserve, more than the injustice that you're feeling or you're seeing. Care about other people. That's how we fulfill the law of Christ. We cannot set it aside. And Judah paints a beautiful picture here of the Lord Jesus who cares about us. And he paints a perfect picture of what we have been called to to care about other people. Now tied with that care is then my third point. And my third point this morning, the third characteristic I see in the speech and the heart of this transformed Judah is grace. Grace. Because the care, the care that that Judah shows to Jacob is not ignorant of Jacob's preferential treatment. 
Let me say that again. It's not that Jacob has ignored the fact, or it's not that Judah has ignored the fact that Jacob loves his brother more than him or loves, you know, Benjamin's mom more than he loves Judah's mom, right? It's not that he has set aside the failings of his father. It's not that he's put them away or forgotten them. He is showing care and love and kindness to Jacob because he's a broken man. Because of his failings, because of his preferential treatment, the way I wrote that in my notes here is that this kindness of Judah towards Jacob is demonstrated specifically because of Jacob's favoritism and preferential treatment. It would have been easy at this point, like when, uh, when Joseph looks at Judah and he says, hey, I don't need to keep all of you. You didn't all steal my silver cup. Only the, the youngest one did. So I'm going to keep him and the rest of you are free to go in peace. It would have been easy at that point for Judah to say like, Oh, this is going to get my dad good. You know, our whole lives, he hasn't cared about us as much as he's cared about stupid Benjamin over there. He loves his mom better than he loves us. The other brother we had, this kid named Joseph, he loved him so much he bought him a coat. He had these dreams. My dad didn't say anything, right? My dad has never loved me as much as he loves that guy. I cannot wait to go home and tell him he'll never see him again, right? And that feels a little bit harsh. But you know, that's sometimes how we feel towards broken people in our circles, People you work with, people in the neighborhood, people in your family that are busted and broken people, maybe that have shown preferential treatment or maybe have done much worse. And sometimes it's so weird that the followers of Christ are anxious to see people get the lightning bolt. You know what I'm talking about? I can't wait for God to serve justice. I can't wait for these people to be punished. I can't wait for them to get what's coming to them. And there becomes this vindictiveness in the heart of Christ followers to see justice served. And we're all anxious to see justice served, but we certainly don't want that justice served to us. We're happy to receive the grace of Christ. We sing songs about it. We cry about it, right? We love that we are recipients of the grace of God, but we never take that grace and turn it around to other people who admittedly need grace because they don't deserve it. You want to know why kindness is so beautiful? Because it's undeserved. Nobody deserves it. Nobody deserves grace. Not you, not me, not anybody you know. And so when, like Judah, we extend care and love, not ignoring people's failings, but because of their failings. He says to Joseph, my father loves this son more than any other. And if we go back to him and Benjamin's not with us, he's going to die. If I go back to him and, and Benjamin's not here, he's, he's a goner. And I can't let that happen. It's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, not, not unfamiliar probably to some of you. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 says to us, followers of Jesus, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Jesus himself in Luke 6.36 says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And what Jesus is pointing to is, you like the fact that God has been gracious to you, right? We all love that. Well, you have the opportunity to be gracious in the midst of the foibles and failings of the people around you. Don't be so anxious for the thunder. Don't be so anxious for the judgment. But instead, look for opportunities to provide a way out, a blessing to those who maybe deserve punishment. Jacob has shown favoritism. Jacob has been preferential. Jacob has loved two of his sons more than he's loved any of his other sons. Jacob probably would die if Benjamin didn't come home, but Jacob didn't die when Simeon didn't come home. Jacob didn't seem to care when Simeon didn't come home. 
That's not something we celebrate about Jacob. It's a problem with Jacob. And yet Judah loves him still. We see humility or or submission in Judah. We see care in Judah. We see grace in Judah. And lastly, at the end of the speech, we see sacrifice. Sacrifice. Look at Genesis 44 and look at verse 33. At the end of his speech, Judah says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah, at the end of his speech, offers his life instead of Benjamin's for the good of Jacob. He offers his life instead of Benjamin's for the good of Jacob. He, he lives a sacrificial life, a picture of the life of Christ. He offers himself. John chapter 15, verse 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. We are called to lay down our lives for other people. And Judah models that perfectly here in Genesis chapter 44. He takes the cost solely upon himself. First John chapter three, verse 16 says to us, by this, we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now here's the interesting thing about sacrifice. We, we talk about sacrifice around here a lot. In fact, it's in our mission statement, right? The mission statement of this church, if you are familiar or not, is uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Fullerton Free is a loving community, united in sacrifice, and living like Christ for the glory of God. Love and sacrifice are at the heart of who we're aiming to be as people around here, right? We talk about sacrifice a lot. And I, and I think we all, we all believe in sacrifice. But many of you probably know the way this story turns out. Judah comes and he offers himself, right? He says, hey, take me instead of my brother. And even though there's kind of a cliffhanger at the end of 44, and I don't want to ruin it for next week, the reality is that Judah doesn't lose his life. And we like that kind of sacrifice, right? Sometimes when we think about sacrifice as Christians, what we think is, I need to, I need to have the heart of sacrifice without actually giving anything up. I need to be willing to lay down my life, but God won't actually let me lose anything. The problem with that mindset is, that most of the time when you actually live a sacrificial life, you die, right? That most of the time when you say, oh, no, no, why don't you go first? The person you let go ahead of you eats all the waffles and there's no waffles left for you, right? That if you try to live a life of submission and care and grace, if you try and live a life of humility and sacrifice, the reality is that many times people will lie about you and they'll take advantage of you and they'll call you names and they'll gossip and they'll spread horrific rumors about you. And that doesn't change the fact that the sacrifice was right. But many times we try it out, right? We try it. I'm going to, I'm going to just kind of, I'm going to sort of put out a gesture of sacrifice. And our hope is that we don't ever have to give anything up. I will remind you as followers of Christ, that when Jesus comes to live a life of sacrifice, he doesn't just do it as a token. When he offers to lay down his life, we take it. The people took it. Our sins demanded it. Jesus didn't just come with a sacrificial attitude. He actually laid down his life. And we as followers of Christ are not called to come with a mindset that goes, uh, I mean, you can go first if you want. And then we're sort of hoping like, God, please let me eat the waffles. No, it's that many times, almost every time, when you and I live a life of sacrifice, you know what happens? You lose. You get slandered. You get thrown under the bus. You lose your job. Things break apart. When you live a sacrificial life, takers will take what you offer. 
And that doesn't change the fact that the sacrificial attitude is the right way to do it. It's still the right thing because it's the thing that puts Jesus on display. Judah doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know that he's putting Jesus on display because Jesus hasn't been incarnate yet. But what Judah is pointing us to long before Jesus Jesus ever came is the reality of what Jesus has done for us. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I would just want to show you that Judah is all of, all of, just, just a type pointing to Christ. That Jesus comes because of his submission to death. He, he humbles himself to the point of death, it says in Philippians, even death on a cross. He submits himself to death for us because of his care for us. He dies on the cross and sheds his blood. He rises from the dead and extends to us, not for sale, not for trade, but as an act of grace, undeserved, unearned favor and kindness. He extends to us resurrection life that you can't buy, you can't pay for, there's no trade-off. He just gives us resurrection life when we believe by his grace. Submission to death, care, grace, and sacrifice. Jesus doesn't just come and go, well, I'd be willing to die for you. Jesus comes and he dies for us. They take his life. We take his life. And his response to that is to then turn and extend resurrection life to all of us by his grace. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, I would implore you to look at the story of Judah and go, oh, that's, that's a guy putting Jesus on display. But for those of you in the room like myself who are followers of Christ, I'll just finish with this. I think if, if I, and I'm not asking you to do this, so please don't respond. But if I said, hey, how many of you think unity is important? How many of you think unity in the body of Christ is important? How many of you think we should be united and that division is satanic? The Bible teaches that. We probably all raise our hand, right? We probably all raise our hand and say unity is something God's called us to and division is the work of the devil, right? I think we all believe in unity and we all want unity. But can I tell you this? Loving unity and and recognizing that unity is important and even wanting unity will never create a a united body or a united family or a united workplace. You want to know how we become united? You don't focus on unity. Unity, wholeness, shalom will come in in the family of Jacob. But you know how it comes? It doesn't come because they all sort of get a hand in and say, hey, can we just be united? You want to know how unity comes? When Judah is focused on laying down his life. The key for us in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces, the key for us is not going, hey, don't we want unity? Do we like unity? Should we aim for unity? Let's all try and be united. That won't ever work. You know what will work? When each and every one of us start laying down our lives for other people. When each and every one of us put on submission and care for others. When we extend grace to those who do not deserve it. And we lay down our lives, recognizing that most of the time when you lay down your life, somebody will gladly take the last waffle. When we aim at sacrifice, when we aim at revealing Christ in his sacrifice and grace and care and submission, unity is the outcome and the byproduct. But you don't get unity if you go after unity. You get unity when you go after Jesus and putting Jesus on display. That's where we got to go. Each and every one of us laying down our lives for the good of others. That's what Judah shows us unwittingly, admittedly, right? He doesn't know how this is going to turn out. We do. But he lays down his life for Benjamin and he shows that God has done a transformative work in his life. And we have the opportunity to show that transformative work as well when we care about others more than ourselves. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would help me and us and our world, followers of Christ around the world, to reveal you in your submission in your care, in your grace, and in your sacrifice, that we would be loving and kind, that we would be generous, 
God, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who not only gesture towards sacrifice, but people who live a life of sacrifice, even recognizing that it will cost us. And in that, God, I pray that you would produce in us as a byproduct, both a clear revelation of who you are, but also a family, a church, a a workplace, a group of friends who are truly united because they are each serving the other instead of themselves. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.